0: Hi, welcome back to TPI's podcast, You Think Minimum? It's Wednesday, September 18, 2019, and I'm Sarah O, Senior Fellow at the Technology Policy Institute. I'm joined today by Tom Leonard, Senior Fellow and President Emeritus at the Technology Policy Institute. Today, we're excited to talk with Brent Skorup and Eli Dorado on airspace auctions and supersonic aviation. Brent Skorup is a lawyer and Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, His research areas include telecommunications, transportation, technology, regulation, and wireless policy. He serves on the FCC's Broadband Deployment Advisory Committee and is the vice chair of the Competitive Access Subcommittee. He has authored pieces in a a wide variety of outlets and has appeared on different news outlets as well. Eli Dorado is an economist and recently served as head of global policy and communications at Boom Supersonic. Before that, a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He has written on a wide range of technology policy issues, including internet governance, intellectual property, cybersecurity, and cryptocurrency. His focus on aviation innovation includes topics such as commercial drones, supersonic flight, and flying cars. His popular writing has appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and other outlets. And he was formerly an advisor to the State Department on international telecommunication matters. Welcome Brent and Eli. Thanks for coming to To Think Minimum, our podcast here. It's fascinating to me that I know you as technology policy scholars and you've both migrated towards a portfolio that includes aviation policy. I just wanted to start off on the debate that you two were having. Is aviation policy different from spectrum policy and how?
1: Well, thank you for having me. I do think there are many analogs and and I I laid out in a paper I published last year with the Mercatus Center uh, called Auction Airspace. It'll it'll be published by the North Carolina Journal of Law and Technology in a few weeks. But there are many analogs and and actually just analogs with other types of federal property, federal assets, like like real property, like offshore oil sites, and, and of course, Spectrum. And so I take that literature that analysis that, that economists have used and and apply it to this novel this novel area of of airspace which uh, and, and there there's been a little talk of markets in in airspace and airport slots but not not as I envision which is actual aerial corridors that are licensed on an ex- exclusive basis to certain companies
0: great and so we were chatting earlier Eli you disagree that Spectrum and airspace
2: are different. Yeah, I think uh, you know Brent and I have been talking about this idea for about four or five years, and we never agreed on it. But I think that um, airspace, in particular, is very different from other assets we usually see auctioned off by the federal government. Because usually, if you're putting together a journey in the sky, you're going to be crossing over several airspace tracks, as um, as, as Brent thinks about it. So you're transiting multiple multiple properties, and that enables all kinds of incentives for competitive games, for holdout problems, for a lot of uh, sort of very bare-knuckle bargaining that makes it very difficult for um, the kinds of transactions that you would need to work. So what do we see normally in transportation networks, on roads or on sidewalks, right, is we see it's it's a commons. There are rules of the road, right, so you know how you're supposed to behave when you're operating in that space and then if, if there's congestion or some problem like that we institute tolls right so so you're not when, when you're driving to Philadelphia from DC you don't like buy a license to access like a, a sort of forty tract of road you just you just drive as it, as you see fit and then you know, get, you get told if it's congestion if there's congestion involved and so on but you just follow the rules of the road and you go and that makes it simpler for for operators of these vehicles to to be able to Inter-service, and it's better for consumers too because you don't have to worry about monopolization. By you know, if let's say an airspace track between your home and your office were owned by one company, you'd be paying a, a potentially a monopoly price or suffering inferior service uh, on that route. So, as we bring in sort of urban air mobility and so on, I think it's important the airspace not be owned, that it is open to as many people as possible. And then there, there are very real congestion issues that we'd have to deal with, but we could deal with them through through tolling or through limiting demand in, in other ways.
3: So for those of us who are not quite as into this as you guys are, maybe you can back up a step and talk about what the major areas of, of aviation innovation are going to be. I mean, how how are our lives? I mean, when I was a kid, which admittedly was a, lot, was a long time ago before you guys were kids, people were talking about. In twenty or thirty years, everybody's going to have a helicopter in their driveway. That didn't happen. At least it hasn't happened yet, and I doubt if it's ever going to happen. What I mean? What type of things can we look for in the future that are, are going to affect most of us?
1: Yeah, I'll I'll start. I'm, I'm glad to come back up. So, and I should say this this airspace concept I'm talking about the the corridor uh, auction and leasing. My paper's dedicated to a certain industry, a uh, novel aviation industry that that is. It's called eVTOL, uh, electric vertical takeoff and landing. So this would be intra-urban uh, shuttles is, is how people generally think about it. And the reason I, I look at this area is because the airspace is relatively clean. So you can, you can come up with new concepts. Whereas you know, commercial airlines, you, you can't really do anything really new. They, they've just resisted too much. But with eVTOL looking at a few hundred feet above the earth, might be time to experiment with a new model because there there are a lot of problems with traditional uh, aviation.
3: So, how is that conceptually different from, you know, some people commute to work in a
1: helicopter? Yeah, and this this is the question for the EV toll or air taxi industry is, and, and there's a lot going on. So, there's about 200 different designs for EV toll aircraft out there around the world. Most of those will will fail, but a few things have happened in the last 10 years or so. Many of the technical challenges with and, and, and these you know resemble helicopters and it would serve many of the same functions as helicopters. However, they're, they're much quieter, uh, lower maintenance. They're often battery powered, and and that makes it in theory more economical to have service. and And the idea uh, from from the companies in this area, which includes Uber, but also Boeing and Airbus and uh, other companies around the world, is that. With ride sharing and, and with computation advancements, you can get this autonomous and drive down the cost to where it could be affordable to, say, professionals in, in an urban area.
3: And, and Within what kind of period of time frame?
1: It's, uh, it's, it's pretty exciting right now. So there's, there's a Chinese drone company called Ehang. They've been shuttling tourists in an autonomous two-passenger vehicle for several months now, and, and they'll start commercial pilots – this year. And so, e- even the skeptics in this area, because you often come across this, you talk about flying cars, you talk about eVital, and people roll their eyes and say, Well, we've heard this before. But you hear less of that because there is a fair amount of investment going into this. And because of this, you know, this Chinese example and, and major players like Boeing Airbus in the area. So, it will happen. The question is, will it just be a glorified helicopter service, and, and you know, fairly expensive for, for a small percent of people, or will it be uh, something that professionals could use, or, or possibly even middle class people?
3: And and that's that's an open question. So if it if it was going to be used more widely, what you're talking about an autonomous vehicle, so somebody could you wouldn't have to have a professional pilot of some sort.
1: Right. The, the, the designs that are out there are typically two to five passenger. And if, if you can remove the pilot, you, know, you, you increase the economic value of, of the service. But also... Um, so I could have one of my drivers. You could. And, and there's, there's a divide over which way this market will go. Will it go to kind of the, the flying car model that you can go, you know, your house to your office? I'm, I'm skeptical. I, I, I think most companies look in this area and, and most analysts look in this area think... At least in the short term, if that does happen, that would be decades away. At least in the short term, it'll be high high revenue routes between, say, a central business district to the airport, or to a football stadium, or, or something along
2: those lines. At least in the short term, and,
1: and I would say that the foreseeable future—that's what it
4: would
2: look like. I think this will start out. So the urban air mobility um, market will start out as having using human pilots, commercial pilots initially, and then. It, at some point, as the regulators get more comfortable, it will switch to remote piloting. So you know, using connectivity between the ground and, and the vehicle in the air, you could, there's no reason you couldn't have a you know a pilot on the ground, sort of operating. And that saves weight and reduces costs that way. And then eventually, you get to fully a- autonomous, and that's coming you know, with, say let's call it 15 years away or something like that. Uh, but it, but it, every step, it's 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 getting you know not only regulators but also the, the customers comfortable with. With the advancements in piloting, but if you look at aviation more broadly, I think we've we've actually seen an incredible amount of stagnation in the field. If you think about it, all starting in 1903 with, with the Wright brothers and their first flight, and then you know by the 1930s we had commercial service. By the 1950s we had jets, uh, including like transoceanic jet travel. You know, get to Europe in really about the same amount of time that we're going today, and we had uh, the first supersonic passenger flight, you know, demonstrator flight in uh, 1969. So, you know, in a span of, you know, what what is that, 60, some 66 years, you know, you went from Wright brothers to to flying supersonic speeds, and today we don't even have supersonic speeds. You had all these pilots coming back from World War II in 1945, and everybody thought, okay, now this is going to make aviation a part of people's daily lives, because all these people have these skills. And you know what have we seen? We've seen general aviation completely stagnate. We've seen uh, airplane designs completely stagnate. There, you know, there's are still some designs that were done in the '60s and '70s that are in production today. You know, essentially with more modern avionics. So I think there's a huge opportunity for aviation to to take a big step forward. And I think it has a huge effect on our lives too, because the thing about getting places faster is that it's not just like sort of a a linear benefit. If you go twice as fast, it's not just like twice as good. You know, if you think about the number of places that you can get to within four hours, if you can go twice as fast, you quadruple the number of places you can get to within four hours. It's it's quadratic. So if you can go six times faster, you can get 36 times as many places uh, faster. So, and when we get to, you know, hypersonic technology, when you're going Mach 5 or more, you know, you're talking about getting anywhere in the world within four hours, anywhere on the planet. And combine that with something like uh, like urban air mobility, and you you really reduce the friction of, of getting around the world and of, of being you know being able to do business on any part any, anywhere in the, in the planet and be home the same day, and so on. So it's is a tremendous opportunity to do better. And it, and the other thing that is really interesting to me about it is that it's a highly regulated sector. So it's a place where where there actually are levers to pull, and you know for a policy analyst or You know, someone that is interested in sort of hacking the regulatory system, like there's a lot of, uh, 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 it's a target rich environment. So that's why I think it's a, it's a fun place to work.
0: I'm curious to hear your views about that intersection between regulators in DC and technology like software and AI and aviation. So Boeing Max um, had a software problem and it, you know, makes a lot of people nervous that They didn't test the software or didn't train the pilots um, enough. What's your view on that intersection between, I don't know, East Coast, West Coast, D.C. (laughs) and California? Um, And it affects, I guess, aviation innovation as well. What's the right balance to strike between seeing innovation in software, self-driving vehicles and safety?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting dichotomy because in software, you know, you want to move fast and break things, but in aviation, if that were the motto, like no one would fly. Right. So so consumers, you know, even today it's the safest form of travel, you know, you know, even counting the the max accidents and so on. Like globally it's the safest form of, of travel that you can do, but people are afraid, right? And so to like keep the market going, we have to demand a high level of safety. And so I do think it's, a you know, it's useful, at least for regulators to, to sort of um, have those demands, you know, like the Max isn't part of software bug, but it's also, you know, kind of a, an oversight, um, just on even on the hardware, sometimes you know, you, they essentially gave one sensor on the airplane, full authority to fly the plane. Right. I mean, that's a, that's a no-no in, in aviation. And everybody knows. It. And if you pointed that out to anybody beforehand, they would have said, oh, that's we, we don't want to do that. We should, you know, if we're giving something full authority to fly the plane, it should be at least, you know, that sort of average of three sensors, you know, or something like that, triple redundant sensing capabilities. So, you know, I think mistakes do get made. There is a lot of innovation that that can happen, uh, including by bringing in software and AI into aviation. Unfortunately, I don't think it's ever going to move as fast as, as sort of, you know, the, the social media world or something like that, where it doesn't really matter if you, if you break something. But to my, you know, in my estimation, you know, I worked with regulators a lot, at, you know, at FAA and, and so on. And, and yes, they're cautious, but, but they want to do the right thing. And, and they're, um, you know, I, I, I found at least on, on, our, on the supersonic issues that we were working on, we, we got a, a fair amount of support from, from the folks at FAA.
1: But, and- it's, I mean, you you guys know this you're at the Tech Policy Institute. I mean, technology used to mean not that long ago information technology, and and, and then me, I mean, media. But now it's healthcare, it's vehicle autonomous vehicles, it's aviation. It's moving into all this, all these other sectors. Most of these are very very highly regulated, as uh, you know, Mark Andreessen said. Software eats the world. And and you're starting to see that clash of this fast-moving tech sector into now these very slow-moving regulated areas. And there is friction there, as you, you would expect. But I found, I mean, similar to what Eli said, I mean, when you do speak to regulators or lawmakers at the federal or state level, they're actually fairly accommodating and open-minded about a lot of this, I mean, for various reasons. Autonomous vehicles, for instance, you know, the cases has been made, and I, th- I think people accept, it will make – cars one day safe much safer than human drivers. And human drivers kill tens of thousands of people a year. And that's one example of why there's open-mindedness. Um, aviation is a little different. You, don't, you have a very safe industry, don't want to rock the boat, but even still you, you do find regulators wanting to improve human lives and, and you know, let commutes be faster and cleaner and, and let people live where they want. And uh, and part of it is international competition. Um, China has has made, for instance, autonomous aviation one of the major pillars that they want to lead the world in. Similar to AI and five G, is it's one of those major pillars. And and that's that's definitely part of it. And you know, it should be sad. I mean, this this White House, Michael Kratzios, uh CTO of the United States, um, you know, had wants to see uh, drones, for instance, um, wants wants to see the US be a leader in drones, and so they have their. IPP project, which is public-private partnerships around the, around the country, finding applications and, and, and ways of, of getting drone services out, out to the public. So, yeah, there, there, there will be frictions, but I, I do find there's, there is a lot of openness from regulators, and it's, uh, it will be a long process, especially in aviation, to, for that to be fully adopted.
3: So maybe since you mentioned drones, maybe we should... Get back to what we started with, which is the issue of how to allocate rights in air in the airspace. I mean, all of these different types of uh, vehicles probably you know, require different things. Obviously, traditionally we have this. We have this thing. I can't remember what it is. You only have rights to your property up to a certain height, right? But what height is that? Yeah,
1: my my next my next paper is on the <laughs> subject. The Supreme Court says you have. You own the, the immediate reaches of your property, so, so yeah, it's not a we, we don't know what that is yet. Yeah. yeah.
3: So you so that you know, so the United Airlines doesn't have to buy rights from everybody that they that they fly over. But certainly for drones and for these other vehicles that you were talking about, you know that might not be, that might not be an acceptable solution. So how do you, how do you see that, that going?
1: So I wrote the in airspace paper, and and there there are some <laughs> other. Uh, similar ideas out there. I know some Rand, some Rand researchers proposed a couple of years ago, kind of real time airspace markets for drones. I'm, I'm skeptical of, of the real time markets, but I, I do think multi year uh, corridors would, would probably work better. But no, there, there's a lot of tricky issues, especially with drone airspace, loyalty airspace, and stay below 200 feet. I mean, that's tentatively where where a lot of people are, are drawing the line. Below 200 feet. There are tricky property rights issues about do homeowners own it? In, in the paper I'm writing about this, it's it's uh, interesting. Several states have expressly vested property rights in airspace to homeowners <laughs> on the ground, and uh, including the rights of way access above public roads is, is claimed by localities, municipalities. Above 200 feet and, and kind of that EV toll airspace, you might want to call it, where, where there could be shuttles one day, that, that's an open question. Uh, the, the law is not very clear. The federal government has claimed sovereignty over airspace, but they don't really claim ownership of it. But it, it's similar to spectrum, and, and you could imagine licenses to particular corridors. You already are seeing this. Actually, last week, I saw an aviation consulting company is, is selling mapping of what they expect will be high-value corridors for urban air mobility. And so you already see companies doing this de facto. And that's what I'm concerned about is that companies uh, and vendors will start route squatting. They'll start squatting on, on the high traffic routes. It might be with helicopters. It might be with drones. It might be with EV toll pilot projects. But you don't want to get to the day, say in five years, where uh, you're, you're trying to figure out how to decongest this airspace. And, and you've given away this, this valuable public asset to to the first movers. And, and there's no reason to expect the first movers will be the best companies or, and, and so.
4: Brent, yeah. this is something
2: I don't understand yeah. in, in the, the point you've made before about squatting on routes. Mm-hmm. Like it's very rare that anybody like keeps a, a helicopter or something flying, you know, for for 24 hours a day. Like how do you envision this squatting happening? Like someone's literally taking up all of the airspace within a corridor over an extended period of time.
1: I mean, much, much like spectrum spectrum is, is not used all the time.
2: It's, but it's this isn't uh, like spectrum, right? This is the, you know, like if, if I am also operating an airplane in the same airspace, there are conditions under which the other person has to give way to, to me. So I don't think it's even possible to squat on airspace. I don't see how that, how that is a, a meaningful possibility. If,
3: who would decide what the car, who decides what the corridors are? I mean, now you can't fly. I mean, planes, I mean, there's, they're defined, defined uh, corridors. Right. To go, I guess the FAA is right. Well,
1: there, there are corridors for uh, commercial aviation today at, at high altitudes. Um, I think well, there's class A airspace, right? No, I mean, there, there's, uh, there are corridors, nine nautical miles,
2: I believe, wide and a thousand feet. There's, there's a separation minimum right, that, right. that air traffic control applies to any airplane, right? Yeah.
1: And there's those corridors. There's something called Victor, Victor routes, airways that are fixed corridors that traditional aviation uses. There are helicopter corridors throughout major cities. These are fixed corridors at, at set levels. So you see this in Europe. You see this flying over the Atlantic. There are fixed corridors. And and I expect if if you take... These companies seriously that they will be flying possibly hundreds of flights a day in urban areas. This is what I foresee happening. They'll be they'll be flying once once the technology is there. They'll be fly, flying regular routes from say downtown DC out to Dulles, and then say a new company comes in and says we have a we have better air traffic management system. We have better we have we have fa- faster airplanes uh, or flat, faster EV toll. You can imagine the resistance to any any incumbent company to a new company coming in and and the FAA would have to adjudicate that and, and make technology choices
2: based on you know some some criteria that they come up with. But wouldn't the FAA just say, Okay, everybody's gotta adopt by certain rules of the road? So, you know, if you're operating you know, if you're a new person that comes in and wants to operate, you've got to you're allowed to do that. And the other person has to, you know, Yield to you in certain situations, and you have to yield to the other person in certain situations. Just in the same way, we don't see people squatting on car routes, right? We we see people operating on roads, and if a new company wants to come in and operate cars on the road, you know they the other people have to let them do that.
1: Yeah, where you do see squatting and hoarding are airport sauce and and that so, I agree with yes. Well, and and that's the the only reason you don't see route squatting is because airlines are required uh, to share. The, uh, the air terminals, and, and so they also share the airspace. But you do you do see slot hoarding and squatting. Yeah, I agree it's, with It's that. a major problem, and I expect you'll see the. I mean, the very similar principle when
2: when uh, well, so when so so anything. then the right thing to do is to is to price or somehow otherwise uh, internalize the external the congestion externality of the slots, right? Or so so you know, I would support something like auctions or harbor, or taxes or something like that for airport slots, for airport gate assignments and so on. And then, you know, if, if necessary for some, for, you know, the vertiports that are going to be used for this urban air mobility, you can impose a, a tax or something like that to deal with congestion issues. Right.
1: And, and, and so, and that, that's the debate. Will will vertiports be proprietary, you know, single company or will they look more like traditional mm-hmm. commercial aviation today where there are shared, Shared amongst carriers, and and with that, and and this raises a, another another issue folks in folks my paper. When you have shared facilities, you need a unified, possibly a, a sole air traffic management system. And one benefit of exclusive corridors is that you can have multiple what, what they call UTM's unmanned traffic management systems. Uh, you don't need a sole one, and and I think frankly, I think this will be the biggest obstacle to EVTOL will be. Figure out technology, getting all the parties to agree on an unmanned uh, traffic system, traffic management system.
2: So this is another area in your paper where I think I don't, I don't uh, quite agree with the way you characterize UTM, right? So you'd say UTM is a centralized, you know, regulator of, of airspace. But it's actually what it is, is it's a system where they use sort of federated airspace service providers. That exchange data according to certain protocols, right? Kind of like the internet, right? That enables them to deconflict air traffic, right? And then, of course, as a as a backstop, FAA is still there. They can still issue temporary flight flight restrictions. They can say this is a no-go zone, and so on. And everybody has to abide by that. But for the most part, the operators don't talk to FAA anymore. They talk to their airspace service provider of choice. And that's actually a a high, to me, that's not regulation as usual and sort of the way you characterize it in your paper. I think that's a highly innovative system where people, we actually are getting FAA out of the day-to-day operation of air traffic management. And I think certainly, I think that there's an ambition within the industry and a hope within the industry that once we get UTM running, we'll actually be able to extend the ceiling on it all the way up to class A. Right? So, we've been trying to get rid of the sort of FAA day-to-day operational monopoly on class A air traffic management for years. And we've had this big battle in the FAA reauthorization last time around on should we privatize it or spin it off to another, uh, you know, private body. Well, actually feder- making it a federated system is way better than just spinning it off privately because then you have competition in in the airspace service provision. And you can, as long as people abide by the, Sort of the the data exchange protocols, then then uh, you know people are free to innovate. Right.
1: I mean, there is a certain element of, of federation to it. I mean, with any huge system like that, you're you're going to see some delegated to, to others. The the problem, and and I, I don't see many defenders of the air track management system we have. I mean, it's it's extremely hard to update. I mean, if you look at the next yeah. gen updates which has been ongoing in some, yes, <laughs> uh, at some levels since 1983. There are tens of thousands of FAA employees working on updating this right now. And that's because it's, it's a unitary system. Yes, there are federated elements to it, but everyone inputs, uh, say, flight plans to, to a single system.
2: No, but NextGen it, is not UTM. Those are very
1: different things. No, no, right. right. I'm, I'm making the, it, NextGen is part of the ATM system. Right. It's updating it to make it more efficient. And you can see it's decades. Uh, it, and, it's not, years and, behind, and it's not really federated. It's years behind budget. It's way behind budget. It doesn't and, work. And, and uh, <laughs> It causes all kinds of complaints. And so with, yeah. with information-rich systems like this, it gets extremely hard to update. Because that federated system, that's where it comes back to bite, is because you create all these veto points because you have holdouts who don't get on board with, with, with the updates. And that's what you're seeing with NextGen, trying to get all these... Uh, general aviation, commercial aviation, to update their systems, satellite-based systems. Yeah, I mean, I, I haven't persuaded you, but, no. um, but I, yeah, there is an no, element, and I, I talk about this a little in the paper. There is a federal element. The problem with that is you create veto points when you try to update that system, and that's a big problem with the,
2: I mean, the updates. Let's think about this like the internet, right? So the internet is a bunch of independent networks that talk together with a, a shared set of protocols, but you still see innovation on the individual networks, right? There's nothing blocking individual networks from updating their technology. It's just, it, you know, you, you might get, you know, worst case scenario, maybe you could argue that some of the exchange protocols are not, are not updated fast enough, but, but in terms of like the individual network management, you see tons of innovation.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the, I think it's a little different. If, if something goes wrong on the internet, you drop packets, uh, you, in airspace you don't yeah, yeah. you don't it, want to drop packets, it is right? actually much uh, more safety critical yeah, right so um, i
2: agree that, that that's a difference
0: i'm learning new things here i'm not an aviation <laughs> expert or a yeah, we've, we've, we've been
2: expert. around
1: yeah, yeah been around. great
0: <laughs> um, but i do see a theme of technology software interacting with the physical world and older industries here
4: yeah drone it's so uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on i mean like Said I mean the FAA is pretty forward thinking about it. Some, I think Virginia, South Virginia, there
2: was some... Mm-hmm. Virginia Tech has, the has a, a drone program that FAA has authorized and so on. So they're doing they've actually done a few deliveries with drones. Like they are. Batteries. I mean, actually, I haven't
3: really they're not quiet, right? They're, they make some noise, right? Yeah, it yeah.
2: makes some noise. So it you know being electric helps, being small helps. Um, having multiple, like more than just like a couple rotors helps like, so, so, you know, if you're, you're spreading the lift, lifting power over yeah. like eight rotors or something like that versus like the helicopters, one main rotor that helps a lot. So, so it's going to be, it remains to be seen because noise sensitivity is the big issue in aviation for a lot of this stuff, right? That's what I spent 90% of my time working on
4: with supersonics
2: yeah. with not even the sonic right, boom, right. the landing and takeoff noise, right? right. Like, like at near airports. And you get all kinds of NIMBY issues, and then this is the reason I want to keep, like, this local governments out of, yeah. of low-altitude yeah. airspace. There's going to be NIMBY issues like crazy. Yeah. Like, if you think, like, housing is bad, <laughs> like, wait, wait until you have local governments in charge of drones. Unfortunately, I think, legally, um, the federal government can, has preempted like all of the, I think all of the state and local local rulemakings about like, you know, we own the airspace and we regulate it. Like, I think almost all of that is um, going to be like null and void if ever challenged. As federal government has said, if you dig a hole like one inch above that, that's federal airspace. <laughs> <laughs> like so. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's their view. Um, that's their view. And that's, but, that's actually good because it means that you won't get the nimbyism. But you won't be able, the so NIMBYs won't be able to do I'm anything. I'm sitting though. in my backyard.
3: <SSSSSSSR> but the homeowners,
0: yeah. A- <SXU> <SSSS>
2: after, after
3: work, enjoying a drink, I'm going to be...
2: The <laughs> but <drone so SSSSR> uh, so. if... But if if the sky is actually black with drones, that's actually, like, a win. I don't think, like, the the sky is actually, like, is super empty. Look outside, right? Like, look how empty it is. The sky is so, so big. It's so so big. Like, and, and the amazing thing is, like, even if you're in a commercial airliner, right, today, like, if you look out the window, you don't see any other airplanes. Like, they are not close by. Like, the sky is so big. That I think it's 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 incredibly underutilized as a resource. So I don't think we're at to the point yet where you, that's really going to be a, a problem. I've but we'll some see. News but,
0: stories though, like drones like peeking into like apartment buildings—is that real? Like, is, no, that's illegal. Use. That's,
2: that is illegal uh, under under like sort of state and local peeping tom, <laughs> tom rules, right? So that's that doesn't. It's not about the drone. It's about the activity that you're doing. Oh, illegal, so, right?
0: the, oh so the drone could. Legally, like drive to drop you off a taco, but not take photos. Sure,
2: is that yeah, the we'll way the
0: regulations are going
2: to go? How I mean, you? it's it that won't be uh, like the actual tacos won't be specified in the regulation, yeah, right? But yeah. uh, it'll, it'll oh, be.
0: but it's the use. It's oh, it's, it's, it's so it's illegal. It's,
2: it's illegal to like look through someone's curtains if they don't want you to. No matter how you do it, whether you're doing using a drone to do it or ah, not. Like. Yeah, like if they if they don't want you to look in, and, like. <laughs> Look, you
4: Isn't
2: know, it public view? I mean, in that case, like I think,
0: like what, yeah,
2: I don't know the actual public standard public? there, right? It's right? Fourth
0: Amendment, like you know, so like, yeah, if the cops co- doing it, if the cops have a the drone, then it's all public view, right?
3: Yeah. If the
0: drone goes up high enough and your window's open,
4: yeah, you if have a
3: reasonable was.
0: expectation that a drone can see you.
3: Well, that's you know, that's, I mean, obviously, if you walk along the street and somebody is somebody's house is close enough to the street and their window is you can, uh, you can see it. You, you, you can, can say see
2: it.
0: But I mean, the, right? Fourth Amendment law: it's a reasonable expectation of privacy. If you think the police can see you,
2: right? So the drone doesn't actually introduce anything novel there. I guess is the point, right? Is because you, you, if you have a reasonable expectation of privacy, you have a reasonable expectation of privacy.
0: I guess if if now it's normal for you to expect a drone to be able to look through the window.
4: Well, yeah. I mean, this was always Scalia's criticism of yeah. expectation
1: of privacy because once once it Basically, if police say they're going to do it, you no longer have an expectation uh, of business. <laughs> right, right. And he was right. Yeah. So, so uh, but yeah, right. there, there was a helicopter case like 20 years ago, and they were hovering, I think, 400 feet. And I, I think they identified some marijuana plants or something. And the Supreme Court said, <coughs> ah, sorry,
4: um, you know, you have no expectation of privacy uh, to your backyard from... I mean, I guess people if you have a telescopic lens or binoculars, yeah. right? Oh, well, yeah. It's right. I, I think, I mean, I think Supreme Court, as more abuses pop up, and they will, you might see them narrow it. Like they do with the cell phone case, because there's a car case. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, cameras on the street corners.
2: Yeah, all it's cameras. all public space, yeah. Right.
0: So the surveillance yeah. um, world we're in now, it's public space.
2: That's
4: the other thing. People just acclimate. Yeah, and then it's kind of hard to say it's not constitutional most people don't care I mean that's kind of diff- I mean and then it goes to the facial recognition so all of that is okay
0: under, under that line of reasoning
4: yeah license
2: plate readers that uh, yep. basically follow you everywhere
3: <laughs> interesting stuff
2: mm-hmm. drones are going to be great we're not going to get them in DC for a long time but because <laughs> oh. uh, of the uh airspace restrictions around the White House and stuff like that. So you won't get your tacos delivered by drone here, but everywhere else in the country is going to get them. <laughs>
0: wow, where does the line end? Is it D.C. proper or is 30 it thirty
2: miles? Uh, think for the White House. I think there's one airspace that's thirty miles, and there's one airspace that's fifteen. Restrictions, and then there's you know five miles around Reagan, five miles around Dulles. Lots of other restrictions like that. Well, I
3: don't know that I want. Drones
0: come
3: uh. <laughs> delivering my topic. I mean I, I I get my deliveries from Amazon quick enough as it is.
2: But I, oh I but they're gonna bring it to you in thirty minutes.
3: Uber
2: eats. Yeah. Order order from Amazon you get your stuff in thirty minutes, that's pretty good.
3: Is, that is good. Yeah. I think gonna, I think I can what are they doing now? From 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 Whole Foods, two hours
4: um, Yeah.
3: Just a couple of hours, I think. I went to Whole Foods yesterday and half the employees were packing up bags to deliver. (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Right.
0: So it's not actual people grocery shopping. Right,
2: right. Yeah.
0: Thank you.
4: Thanks for having us.